0: at last a warm sensitive touching story about the close personal relationship between a man and a woman between a trucker and his dog Fred up so damn tired of picking you up I got to Fred between a father no way. and his son no way that you could come from my loins. and how they all took to the road one day for a quiet little drive in the country Georgia to Texas and back in 28 hours flat with a truckload of bootleg beer. I'll be driving this one. Yeah, blocker. blocker. You'll be driving the truck. This is Bandit one, and that is uh, Bandit two. (laughs) Now, who would do a thing like that? (laughs) That would be crazy, you know that? Yeah, you You know know (laughs) that. Yes. How much much money you say it was? Eighty thousand dollars. Universal presents. Bert Reynolds, Sally Field, Jerry Reed, and Fred. We're gonna really have to cook. I mean, put it on the back burner and let's cook. Is that a 10-4? 10-4, And the only thing that stands between them and an $80,000 prize, Jackie Gleason as Sheriff Buford T. Justice. I got a barbecue, you Bandit, I got a smoky report for you. What's your handle, son? My hand. This is Smokey and the Bandit, the story about a lazy weekend in Alabama, Texas, Mississippi, Arkansas, Georgia. Daddy, the top came off. No, no. We ain't gonna make it, son. We come this far, and we?
1: Look, when we say we gonna do a job, we do a job? It's me they're after. They don't even know Clintus now exists. Oh, they don't. Well, I'll tell you what we're gonna do. <laughs>
0: Smokey and the Bandit, proving once and for all, it's not where you're going that counts. It's who the hell's in back of you. <laughs>
2: you hearing me loud enough?
3: Yeah, you sound great. You're hearing my... this loud enough? I, I
2: know oh, it's not a ba- I know it's not a banquet. It's not a banquet, so it doesn't really count. Now,
3: wait a minute. And I got my cat hat on, so I'm ready to go. I didn't understand. I, I saw that term today online, Coors Banquet, and I didn't even understand what that meant. What is it? Is a Coors Banquet, is that like a, that's a that's a variety of Coors?
2: Yeah, Coors Banquet is not Coors Light. And it's sort of a throwback to the beer that this entire movie is based around. Um, And one of the reasons why uh, Smokey and the Bandit had to get it there so so quickly because they didn't they didn't make it with all the additives and preservatives that other beers had, and so it would spoil very quickly.
3: Is that right? That's right. This is a great way to start the episode. I had no idea. But were they calling it Coors Banquet back in '77?
2: I don't remember. Uh, but but I think it might have been called Coors Banquet, but I'm not exactly sure about that.
1: I, I seem to recall that before Coors went national, that it was uh, referred to as Coors Banquet, or at the very least, it you know, the banquet was a sub name, and a lot of beers had uh, sub names. You know, like you know the you know the fact that. You know, when you buy Miller, you buy Miller High Life, and there was that period in the 90s when Miller created another beer that was just called Miller, that it had a different blend than Miller High Life. So, and in, in Cincinnati, we had uh, a beer called Hudipol, but you know, I think the, the full term was Hudipol 14K.
2: Well, here I'm looking it up and it says Coors Banquet Beer had a brief renaissance as certain people sought it out for its lack of stabilizers and preservatives. Uh, There's a Time article about it and says future Vice President Gerald Ford hid it in his luggage after a trip to Colorado in order to take back to D.C. Uh, President Eisenhower had a steady supply
3: airlifted to Washington by the Air Force. So it, it was a big thing okay but that's not actually a plot element that is spoken in smoking the bandit the the the, the time frame is because they're trying to get it i thought they're trying to get it there in time for whatever kind of bullshit event that they're having the right
2: Bradettes. but it, but but it wasn't allowed to be sold right. The, right
3: that part i understand but this whole not having preservatives and there being like a time frame that the beer had to get there or else it would spoil like that's not part of the movie is it
2: uh, there's, no, I, I think there's a few things that the movie kind of leaves out that would would add, would have added to the element of like this has got to happen, you know? Um, yeah. Chalk it up to the sloppiness of Hal Needham.
1: Or yes, chalk it up to the efficiency of Hal Needham. It's like, okay, we have we have the bet which is big enough. You know, why do we need to complicate matters by talking about the beer spoiling? You know, because people are going to start thinking, oh, well, if they make it right under the wire, that means they've only got so much time to drink all that beer and it'll spoil anyway. So, you know, just right, you know, get down to what matters. Right. Although
3: that beer seems to have been and it seems to have been sitting in that warehouse for God knows how long, just waiting for them, uh, th- that abandoned warehouse. But uh, so taking a page out of the other podcast that Scott Lucas and I do, Lifers, which if you aren't listening to, you should be because it's Fucking fantastic, one of the greatest podcasts of all time, but we tend to start that podcast mid-conversation, and that isn't really the way we do things on 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s, but we did that just now, but this is 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s, and importantly, it's episode number 36, which means we have just gotten over the hump. We're just over the halfway point in our quest to talk about 70 movies that we saw in the 70s. Now, to be fair, we've already broken those rules all over the fucking place. There's been plenty of movies that either one or none of us have actually saw in the 70s. uh, Recently, uh, Scott saw Black Sunday for the first time. But usually we try to have at least somebody on the show who saw whatever movie we're talking about in the 70s. But anyway, 70 movies we saw in the 70s. I'm Ben Reiser. That's Scott Lucas. And our special guest tonight is Mark Edward Hoyk. And Yay. I will carry over another tradition from the old Mike McPadden days of 70 movies we saw in the 70s, which is that we don't really introduce the guests. If they want to tell people about themselves, they can do it. Otherwise, we just go for it. So, Mark, anything you want to say about yourself? People can look you up on the Internet, and they can figure out all about
1: you. Uh, yeah. Ahead, uh, to, to 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 give you a few signposts as to where you should be looking, um, yeah. I, I'm on Twitter, and at T-H-E underscore H-O-Y-K, which is the phonetic pronunciation of my name. Uh, you know, people have been misspelling and mispronouncing it since I've been a sentient being, and you know, that's the the hand I've been dealt, and you're making the effort, that's fine. Um, I have my personal blog, which is called The Projector Has Been Drinking, and you can find that at projectorhasbendrinking.blogspot.com. I've done nice. uh, DVD commentaries, I've uh, written program notes for the New Beverly Cinema, and then of course there was that uh, dopey game show I did for Comedy Central in 2002, that was uh you know, too early ahead of uh, geek culture and got canceled just before it became a thing. And now nobody wants to acknowledge it.
3: <laughs> that was called Beat and the Geeks, Fox, right?
1: Yes. And Fox Television buried the tapes and salted the ground. And we're never going to see reruns of that show again.
2: <laughs> Mark, did I read right? Were you uh, a projectionist at CineFamily and at uh, New Beverly?
1: I have projected at those venues uh yes i have I have projected at the new art the new beverly uh Cine family and uh and a few other uh places uh in the Los Angeles area in one capacity or another so i i I'm very proud of being able to handle thirty five millimeter film and uh keep a show running um I think one of my proudest achievements was for a uh, a big event in one of the beautiful, splashy downtown theaters. I projected all 12 reels of The Godfather Part Two. I think that's a rite of passage every uh, projectionist has to go through, and I passed mine.
3: I don't know. The rite of passage that we have over at Cinematech is, if we want to train a projectionist, we make them show a touch of zen in the original, they have like ten-minute reels, and it's like a three-hour thing, and it's so you're like you're like you're bouncing back and forth every every couple minutes for hours on end. So that's that's the rite of passage. But okay, God Godfather's you. Fair enough. Fair enough.
1: No, that's cruel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I thought rites of
3: passage are supposed to be cruel.
1: Not necessarily. They're just supposed to be difficult, but not insurmountable.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. So uh, we're talking today about Smokey and the Bandit, which is the second Burt Reynolds movie in a row that we uh, have talked about. And I would say the most adjacent film other than that that we've talked about on this show was way back when one of the first 10 episodes, I think, we did Convoy which is a movie that I did not see in the 70s and was really kind of like, when I did finally watch it for this show, I was like, oh boy. <laughs> uh, uh, are, you into, are, you, are either of you into Convoy?
2: I don't mind Convoy. It was coming up uh, after Smokey and the Bandit ended and I just let it go. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the opening of Convoy was definitely pretty good and it looked great too. Yeah,
1: uh, for 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 a movie that everybody w- was kind of reluctant to be on, it's it's still pretty damn entertaining. I I, I think my fave my favorite story about Convoy that's I'm sure been told many times is that at one early in the production, Sam Peckinpah was having a big fight with uh, the producers, and they finally. Uh, canned him and Chris Christopherson was you know, worried and went to them and said look if you get rid of him I'm walking off this movie too and they relented and then the next day Sam buttonholed Chris and said what the hell were you doing I was off this movie
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I still want somebody to explain what they were thinking with the look that they gave Ali McGraw the hair? <laughs> yeah, holy god Good. good god So anyway, uh, Smokey and the Bandit is a movie that I saw in 1977 when it was released. Here I am living in Brooklyn, New York. I'm a kid, born and bred Brooklyn. And I couldn't have been any more into, and I feel like all my friends were too, like CB culture. Like you wouldn't think it would have, uh, you know, gotten into the streets of Brooklyn, but it did. My friend Alan Broadman had a CB radio in his bedroom. And we would have sleepovers there, and we would like fuck around on that stupid CB radio all night long, like trying to like hook up with actual truckers and pretend that we were truckers and try to convince truckers that we were, you know, on the road with them. And uh, you know, usually wound up with like truckers threatening us and and, and, right. and telling us they were going to figure out where we were and come beat the shit out of us. Right. <laughs> but, um, uh, but I loved Smokey and the Bandit, and it if I'm if I've read my New York Times things. Uh, correctly today it it actually was released a week before star wars uh in may of 77 in at least in new york um and so it beat star wars by a week and 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 it and it made it into brooklyn faster than star wars did because i didn't end up seeing star wars until the middle of the summer Uh, my family decided to go on a cross-country trip in a van we went from Brooklyn to California and back, and when we were headed west, we stopped in Chicago, and I finally convinced my parents that we needed to stop and see Star Wars, which my friends had been talking about for months, or at least a month, and uh, so they relented, and we saw... I saw Star Wars for the first time in Chicago, downtown Chicago. I don't remember which theater it was, but some... Like, in an old building? I don't know. I, I think Jim Healy has figured out what, what theater I must have seen it at, but anyway... But so honestly, in 77, Smokey and the Bandit was as big, at least as big for me as Star Wars was. And I think I probably saw Smokey and the Bandit like four times that summer uh, in theaters before it it eventually left. You know, again, in 77, like movies would be would play for like six months at a time and then come back the next year and
1: play all over again for another six months. Smokey and the Bandit and Star Wars are basically the two most important movies of 1977 I mean yeah there's another there are other movies that have more critical prestige or you know maybe made more money but in terms of cultural impact those are like the two top tier you know there someone made a photo of uh of uh, Burt Reynolds driving the Trans Am and someone superimposed Darth Vader riding in the seat next to him instead of Sally Field, and that is the perfect encapsulation of 1977. I mean,
2: those movies made the most money that year, right? There's no, nothing else that
3: topped those two. No, they were the number one and two. I oh, believe. okay.
1: And peculiarly enough, I feel like both of those movies were so severely underestimated... When they were approaching release, you know, because, you know, the the story on Star Wars Mm -hmm. is that, you know, they looked at the early rushes and most of the executives thought this was just some kid's movie. And then, you know, Alan Ladd Jr., you know, the tradition, you know, the guy who barely says anything in meetings just said, could be big. And, you know, but they hedged their bets. You know, they only opened in a few theaters at the beginning of May. That's why it's May the 4th, but it opened wider at the end of the month. And the same thing happened with Smokey and the Bandit, that at the time Smokey and the Bandit was about to come out, I mean, Burt Reynolds was working regularly, but he was just kind of considered, you know, not... I don't want to say like a Chuck Norris... In the sense of you know an action guy, but as someone who was kind of a programmer, you know, just like, oh okay, yo, know, there's you know there's so much money we'll make off of a Burt Reynolds movie. It'll do fine in the southern drive-ins, but we're we're not expecting much out of this. And you know he's just kind of jumping from one studio to another, having varying degrees of success. But you know no one's really looking at him as you know anything of substance and the fact that they opened in New York before they opened in the South because it wasn't until it started playing the Southern drive-ins that Smokey and the Bandit exploded. When Universal had this they figured this was just going to be another blow-off you know, to you know, because Ray Stark was one of the producers, and they wanted to be in bed with him because he. Fig- they figured, oh well, he did Funny Girl. He'll give us some prestige movie later down the road, but right now we got to kiss his ass. And and then suddenly they, you know, they got handed the the greatest you know hit they could have asked for since Jaws. Yeah, but even even going back
3: further than that, Hal Needham talks about writing the. The script on on like legal pads, and he was living in Burt Reynolds' like pool house, and handing the script just for Burt to read, just it's like, will you read this script I wrote? And Burt Reynolds uh, saying it was the worst thing he ever read, but he would be in it if he wa- if he can get the if he could raise the money to make the film. But that Hal Needham hadn't been thinking about Burt. He he was thinking of it as a as a million dollar. Um, uh, Jerry Reed movie. Jerry Reed was going right. to be the bandit, so like it had very small aspirations to begin with. And then going back to Star Wars for one second, because I because I got into this today, I looked up the New York Times review of Star Wars, which came out the day after it opened, so Thursday, May twenty sixth, and Vincent Canby reviewed it. But amazingly, on the page right next to the review is another article. Uh, by Al Jean Harmitz, and it so it's so the, the headline for the Vincent Canby review is "Star Wars: A Trip to a Far Galaxy That's Fun and Funny," dot dot dot, and then the headline for the article right next to the review is dot dot dot, and it almost didn't get to the screen. So even as soon as it came out, they were already telling the story of how Star Wars wasn't even you know was in danger up until the the point that it wasn't. Um, you know, that, no, that, 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 that it almost didn't get made and then, you know, at various times they were going to cut the budget and they did cut the budget and all this shit. So, yeah. So, you're right. Two very underestimated movies.
2: Yeah, but once Bert signed on, he was able to get the budget from $1 million to up, upwards to $5 million.
3: Yeah. So, he, but I,
2: he had clout then. He, he wasn't just like this guy that nobody was listening to. If, if he signs on to the project, they're like, all right, we'll, we'll throw more money at it.
3: Yes, but then I think they did cut back that budget they did. again.
2: They cut it back, right? Yeah,
3: and then I and then they also had some trouble with Pontiac getting enough Transams and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, well, because uh, Bert's track record before Smokey is very unstable. You know that he's like if we look, you know, going backwards, uh, he had made Nickelodeon with Peter Bogdanovich mm-hmm. and At Long Last Love with him, and both of them had done poorly. Uh, He had done Hustle for Robert Aldrich, and that had been, you know, middling. Lucky Lady had been disappointing. W.W. and the Dixie Dance Kings hadn't really delivered. Uh, Gator was a sequel to White Lightning, and that's where Jerry Reed and, you know, Hal Needham came into the picture, and that did fine. You know, so I think people's expectations of what a Burt movie could do were small
2: what year was the longest yard
1: yeah well longest yard was the previous movie he did with aldrich and that went over great i mean that was probably yeah. his last big hit i mean and i but I, I
3: think the person with as low expectations as anybody was bert himself like mm-hmm. i think he was doing this because he was pals with hal and he was like yeah you know I'll, and also because bert notoriously has no taste in in, in what movies he picks, so you know, uh, I, I, I think they lucked. You yeah, know, and that, this is that, another Bert, movie where Bert like Bert likes uh, to work. Bert, Bert like. likes to work, but Bert, he, Bert is a guy who, even after he has huge hits with things, isn't a guy to then sort of sort of be proud of them. You know, I, if you watch later interviews with Bert, he's like, yeah, you know, smoking the bandit. It's a fun movie to go. You know, but he he never he didn't seem to really appreciate it as any great work of of cinema. Uh, you know, and then Scott and I were talking last week about uh, what an asshole he was about Magnolia and about Paul Thomas. Boogie Anderson. Nights. Oh, Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights. Sorry, right? He probably didn't like Magnolia either. He, no, he probably. Well, he could have. Really could have been Magnolia.
1: in Magnolia if he hadn't been such a jerk.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, but he wouldn't have. He would. He never would have taken the job. He yes. he, he couldn't get off the boogie night sets fast enough. And so I'm sorry, Scott. And Mark, I, I want to hear what what was your first
1: time with with Smokey? Because Mark, I know you're a big you're a big Smokey guy. I was about a year into my parents' divorce. Uh, my parents had split up around 1976, and so it was that period where you know you're trading off you know visitation, and I had very limited visitation with my dad. And at that time, he was. Uh, dating someone who had uh, children of their own and I was an only child and I liked, you know, being among other people cuz I felt stifled with my mom. And we went to what was then one of the premier uh multiplexes in Cincinnati. It was uh the Showcase Cinemas in Springdale. This was uh uh showcases were eventually, you know, National Amusements Redstone Theaters, you know, the you know, what, you know, Sumner Redstone had under his feet that he used to buy Viacom later down the road. Uh, and so Mm. they were, and they had just built two complexes in the Cincinnati area. So this was like, you know, the hot seat place to see a movie. And we went to see Smokey and I didn't know, I mean, I kind of knew that there were going to be cars involved, but, uh, I had, I was already film obsessed though. I was one of those kids who poured over the paper every Friday to look over the ads and just, you know, gaze at them and watched uh, commer- commercials on television because c- uh, I just got very very laser focused on show business when I was a tot. and So we went and I was just blown away by the movie, there it was. I was all. It was eminently quotable, and you know, Sally Field was adorable, and every all, all the action was uh, pretty astounding, and and I. I don't, think I, I don't think I saw it multiple times in the theater the way that I did with Star Wars, but I remember that when my dad first got a VCR, uh, one of the first things he was able to get from a friend was a bootleg VHS on LP speed that had Star Wars and Smokey <laughs> and the Bandit on it. It was just like, that is... A oh,
3: perfect double feature, yeah.
1: Absolutely.
3: Mark had you uh do you remember what what your awareness of Burt Reynolds was before Smokey? Had you seen Deliverance on TV at least or uh any of his other stuff? Longest Yard? Um, I feel like I must have th- by 77.
1: I think by 77 I knew Burt Reynolds was a famous person, you know, cuz I had I had seen his face in, you know, commercials for other movies. I don't think I had watched a Burt Reynolds movie top to bottom before though so i did not know just how charming mm. a person he was and so so this was kind of like my first taste of bird and and of uh Jerry Reed for that matter although i think i had heard Jerry Reed's songs on the radio you know he he had already done uh, when you're hot you're hot and uh Amos Moses and such. So this
3: was basically your first taste of Burt. Absolutely. Scott, what about you? What about you and Smokey in the
2: Bank? I mean, Burt was everywhere. To me, the 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 two people were Burt Reynolds and Farrah Fawcett. So that was just, you know, I guess Million Dollar Man was in there. Six Million Dollar Man was in there somewhere, too. Yeah. But, like, my first thing with Burt and the thing that I loved the most was The Longest Yard. Um hmm Just loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. And by the time this came around, I don't even think I saw it until years later on TV because I just didn't... I wasn't in a family that cared about cars. And it was like, in in my neighborhood, I mean, I don't know about you, Ben. I know you like this. It might have smacked of Exotica for you, but for me, it was just... (laughs) All this shit was all around me, and I hated it, you know? And I, I just... Yeah, I hated that crap. So I, I didn't really care about it as much as I cared about something like Longest Yard. But I did like, you know, the Jerry Reed songs and I was aware of it. And once again, it was one of those movies that I felt like I knew everything about it by the time I actually saw it.
1: To balance uh, what Scott was saying, I want to chime in on the fact that uh, my background was kind of upper middle class that uh, my, my dad had a family business that he ran uh, but it was a very blue-collar business. It was uh, my great-grandmother Matilda Eisenlohr Hoyck invented the turkey lacer. So we had a company that manufactured mm. kitchen gadgets, uh, can openers, barbecue tools, tongs, etc. So, and I would go to the, to my dad's factory on regularly to like on saturdays he'd do he'd catch up on paperwork and i'd watch cartoons or fiddle around on someone's desk but i would make regular visits to the factory and you know very blue collar working class people there and so what i'm trying to say is for, in cincinnati ohio even being an af from an affluent family i was you know kind of this close to uh you know, working class car culture, and and so I, I it's almost, it's like that episode of uh, the Monkees where you know they're caught up in the hillbilly feud, and Mike Nesmith is saying, "Yo, welcome to Swineville, where a crowd of uh, he- happy country folk can turn into an angry mob." How do you know? Because these are my people.
3: <laughs> right. Yeah, well, in, in defense of me and 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 my love of Smokey at the time and and your charge of Exotica, I mean, I <laughs> yes, I don't know about that. I don't know that I thought it was exotic because, like I said, we understood CB radio culture and stuff back in, Or maybe maybe Smokey was one of the things that inspired it. The internet say, of the day, right? But what I what I agree with oh, you about yeah. is absolutely the internet of the day. I do I do agree that it was probably easier for me to love because because you're right I wasn't not only was I not from a car family but I didn't know anybody who was from a car family there there was no car culture in Brooklyn there was no there was no real you know we, we didn't know any rednecks or anything I wasn't surrounded by this it was like here, here's my analogy for this when I lived in New York and met my wife who was from Wisconsin in, in college on the East Coast and she came back and lived with me in Brooklyn for 10 years. We were big Green Bay Packers fans, not because we gave a shit about football particularly, but it was fun to be a Green Bay Packers fan in Brooklyn because there wasn't anybody else who was a Green Bay Packers fan. Nobody gave a shit. As soon as we moved out to Wisconsin, I never wanted to watch another Green Bay Packers game in my life because I was surrounded. I'd walk out of my house and my neighbor would would have like a framed Reggie White poster that he would hammer into the tree in front of his house and hang every Sunday as part of it, and I was like, fuck this shit. But yeah, you're right. It was it wasn't it was easier probably for me to just get with the Smokey and the Bandit program because I I wasn't surrounded by a bunch of nudniks who were like into that twenty four seven. Well, it
2: never occurred to me before until you started talking about it that this movie movie was aimed at C B culture. Like it uh, just like hadn't never crossed
3: my mind. Well, it was, I think. Yeah. I mean, certainly Convoy yeah, it, was. It, I mean, that was based well, well, on that yeah. D song,
1: but well, Scott, yes, you're fine. very astute at talking about how CB culture was the internet of the time because this was the way that people discovered other people who weren't like them. You know, that this was a way to just randomly go out and find interesting people from another way of life and discover that you had something in common with them. Um, and... I I think that's really well pointed out in uh, Jonathan Demme's uh, *Citizen's Band*. You know that you know the the way that movie plays out over all the characters and their CB radios. It's almost exactly like people conversing over Facebook or over Nextdoor. It's 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 really and I. And I think people don't take that into account when they think about CB culture. You know, they think it's just you know a bunch of you know country fuckers talking in code.
3: Well, it's that too. It can be yeah. both things at once. Yes, you know? that's
1: right. <laughs> um,
3: okay, so let's talk about the movie. Uh, which Scott? Wait, have you ever cut? Did you ever like watching it again? Now, do you? I mean, do you have any fondness for the movie as a movie? No, no, I, I, I. Uh, uh, I, I I
2: had I had seen it before, uh, but until yesterday, I hadn't seen it in a while. Um, I mean, what do you guys think about it now? How do you feel like it's aged? I mean, I don't want to get too far off on a tangent, but
3: I you know I've I I realized watching it this week that I actually watched it and I, I, my memory is so bad I forgot that I had done this. But towards the beginning of the pandemic, um. I watched it in my neighbor's backyard, so like a year ago.
1: Mm. Uh,
3: we threw up a projector, and like we were looking for something to watch with our families, and that was on Amazon or something. I was like, oh, fuck it. Let's just watch Mookie and the Bandit. And I kind of, I, I liked it. And, and watching it this week, I like, I mean, I see, you know, I watch so many movies these days and so many shitty movies that I really see its good qualities. And, uh, you know... I see Burt Reynolds, you know, aside from Deliverance and Longest Yard, sort of at his most, well, not even aside from them, but Burt, this is like the charming Burt Reynolds. This is like the I'm I'm trying to be Clark Gable Burt Reynolds. And I don't know that he actually pulls it off, but he, it's a close enough facsimile that we're like, yeah, okay, I can see what people found appealing about him. He's got that dopey laugh and he's, you know, right. got this laid-back attitude and he thinks he's king of the world and he's kind of infectious. But most of all... And here's the, here was my Brooklyn connection that I don't, that I must have known at the time, but it really strikes me now, is Jackie Gleason, who, you know, whose most famous character is Ralph Cramden, who's a Brooklyn bus driver. But Gleason, who I think, and I th- probably feel has always, I've always felt this way, steals this fucking movie, is like a one-man army of, like, hilarious one-liners that were apparently, like, almost entirely improvised by him. Um Yes, yep,
2: Scott. <laughs> but the, the Jackie Gleason character, yeah. I, I want to know if either of you think this. Is the Jackie Gleason character a ripoff of Sheriff J.W. Pepper from Live and Let Die? Because I think he is. I think it's it's like... I think in my memory, sometimes I've gotten them confused. Like certain scenes from Live and Let Die or The Man with the Golden Gun, I've gotten confused with certain scenes from Smokey and the well, Bandit.
3: Far be it from me to ever not credit Clifton James for being uh, a fucking stone cold genius and one of the greatest screen presences of all time so you're not going to get an argument from me I don't think that I, I don't think I felt that at the time and I I was totally into that character I loved Clifton James in those fucking James Bond movies and everything else he did I mean certainly you know they're both southern sheriffs but aside from that I think that I think that Gleason is more malevolent He's more of an overt racist. There's yes. all sorts of shit he's bringing to this part that doesn't have anything to do with the Clifton James character. But wouldn't you have thought yeah. that, like,
2: that Smokey and the Bandit, that Live and Let Die would have had that sheriff, J.W. Pepper, because of Smokey and the Bandit? Like, like, I'm shocked that that came before Smokey and the Bandit. I'm shocked that a lot of things came before Smokey and the Bandit, you know, like Sugarland Express or I mean, all Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, all that stuff was before Smoking the Bandit, and it kind of freaks me out a little.
3: Well, I think Smoking the well, Bandit distills all that stuff and makes it mainstream and, 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 and unlocks this key to like allowing mainstream America and children of all ages to sort of soak in some of that, some of that genre magic that, that, hmm, that you're yeah. right had come before the service. But go ahead, Mark, I know you got a lot to say.
1: If you, if you really want to th- think about uh, Smokey and the Bandit, uh, uh, the thing to do is watch one of the films that Burt made before Smokey, which is, oddly enough, one of his hardest ones to see now, which is W.W. and the Dixie Dance Kings, which, in a sense, has almost the exact same structure as Smokey in that he's playing an outlaw... He is going up against a you know, hard-nosed sheriff, being uh, or police off police official, being played by Art Carney. <laughs> so, Ooh, uh, nice. and so it, it's almost like that movie is the dry run for Smokey. That I, 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 to the best of my knowledge, Hal Needham was not involved. Oddly enough, uh, there's a lot of hee-haw personnel involved in WW mm. like uh you know uh, you know, especially uh, you know that that one girl who was never dressed up sexy she was the one always in overalls that at the end said that's all uh uh is yeah. in the movie and Minnie you know, so he's he's play no not Minnie Pearl the you no, know, not the, Minnie the Pearl? Blonde okay. kind of... kind no no Min- Minnie Pearl was already you know you could you know, chopper in half and count the rings around the center like a damn oak tree. Uh, oh,
2: you mean the one that was sexy?
1: Yeah, but but not yeah, you know, but she wasn't okay. wearing you know you know busty outfits and and you know showing off. She wasn't her legs. wearing Daisy
3: Dukes, right?
1: Yeah, she she was the one always in overalls. Okay, but but Mark, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm going off track. What I'm saying is that WW and the Dixie Dance Kings uh, has the same thing going on as Smokey. But it doesn't, obviously does not do it as well. But it's like they were, they figured out, okay, give him a strong you know, lawman antagonist, but don't make him a moralizer like uh, Art Carney's character is. Like Art Carney's character is a police officer who also has like a Sunday morning religious program. So he's like this temperance type, you know, so make it don't make it about you know alcohol is bad make it about you know just this man is drunk on his own supply of of lawman hubris and so what and therefore you know, make it make not necessarily even about the bandit it's that the bandit has gotten himself involved in a completely other situation in terms of you know him getting revenge over Sally Field jilting his son and and may and just being the chaos agent that sends him over the top
3: okay but Mark address uh, Scott's accusation of um, Gleason stealing his character from Clifton James if you will well
1: first off okay Gleason I will not say that gleason stole his act from from clifton james any more so than clifton james stole his act from cool hand luke okay Okay. there is a long and infamous tradition of nasty southern uh lawmen in the movies they're all pretty much the same template and you can't say you can say that some did it Better than others, but it's always been there. I mean, you can go all the way back to Thunder Road with Robert Mitchum.
2: I'm not saying Jackie Gleason stole it. I'm saying the character, uh, maybe I am.
3: I don't know. Well, I think that, um, I think Clifton James uh, can never be accused of, of, I mean, maybe you could say he steals those James Bond movies, but I mean, he's really just a support he's like a cameo in those movies he's like like, and whereas gleason you know for all intents and purposes uh carries this fucking movie on his shoulders uh you know and anytime this movie needs a laugh and they need it all the time because this movie is you know it's a car chase it's a romance but above above all i believe it's a comedy and the guy who's supplying 95% of those laughs is gleason and he's doing it off the top of his head and he's coming up with shit that is like yeah and really coming close to the yeah. edge of just being too offensive to actually be funny but somehow yeah. mostly stays on the right side of that line with a few notable exceptions but we yeah. can get into those as the, yeah. the show goes
1: yeah that that uh like if anything you know Clifton James shows up in two Bond films and you know in the first one He's clearly meant to be, if not an antagonist, at least an impediment. Plus, the fact that he (laughs) is a white sheriff in a very black themed Bond movie. So, you know, they're not trying to make him a racist full on, but he's definitely, you know, going to be clashing with the climate of that movie. And what happens is that people. He calls
2: everybody boy
1: he but they react to him so much that the bond producers decide okay let's put him let's give him a small amount of screen time in man with the golden gun because it'll it'll get an audience pop yeah i mean it, and when they and when they do that you know they've they've got they've got to soften him up a little bit you know that because well he's an you know, it, it, he kind of falls into the same category as jaws that He's initially an antagonist, but and, but after a while, the audiences like him too much, and they've got to soften him down.
2: Right. I mean, it, it is kind of interesting and cool how much Jackie Gleason is willing to be unlikable and racist in this movie, and I I, I do respect that.
3: Well, but that I now I've been trying to defend Gleason, but I will say. You know, Jackie Gleason was a pretty unlikable son of a bitch in real life. And so it's hard to say. I mean, I do think he's a master screen presence. So I do think that whatever you're seeing of him on screen is deliberate. But I also think that 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 a lot of that is Jackie Gleason. And I was reading this week that, that, and I'm not sure what this story is, that there was originally supposed to be more scenes with him and Reynolds, but that after they shot that diner scene, Burt Reynolds was like, fuck the rest of these scenes with me and Jackie Gleason. We don't need them. Really? Yeah. Did you hear that, Mark?
1: I've heard a version of that story, and I would not be surprised at that, because I think Both he and Gleason would have understood uh, the economy of scale. That okay, we've had this one missed encounter between the two of them. That's all we need. (laughs) Right, like he, we've seen them. That that uh, yeah, I'll take the
3: I'll take their diner scene over the scene of professional wrestling. (laughs) And
1: there's at when it's at its best, it has the same level of drama that any good TV or movie has, and one of them is about the chase, that you've got, that sometimes it is way more interesting for a good guy to be chasing after an antagonist or vice versa, to have an antagonist who just cannot bring a hero down. And so if you've got one good encounter between the two of them, you don't muck it up by trying to do the same thing over again Yo, got it? Move. Hmm.
3: I will say that Jackie Gleason eating that El Diablo sandwich is one of the most amazing, if not the most amazing scenes of somebody eating something on screen that I've ever seen. The fact that he gets through all that dialogue without without choking to death, and he seems like he's just about to. <laughs> just about and it seems to, yeah. like that that when he spills that shit on his shirt, that seems like a total like in the moment thing. Then Burt Reynolds is improving by cleaning up his shirt and all that stuff. It is a great scene between them. That, that's the other thing. Like I think if I'm Burt Reynolds and Jackie Leeson, I'm like, well, this we're not going to be able to top this scene. We just nailed this fucking thing. We don't need anything else. And you know, and, and I agree. Like the, maybe the less you see them together, the better. And you do get to see them again at the. End, there's that one shot where they're kind of in the same frame and they're in their separate cars and Bert's fucking with them just like heat yeah yeah just like heat just
2: like I mean I, I I still <laughs> yeah. think a lot of the Gleason stuff like like you know like him kicking the kid in the balls and stuff and I mean there's a lot of mean-spirited stuff that yeah. he's doing and and I don't think all, all of it is terribly funny um and it looks like they went to some lengths to to tone it down in post ADR, right? Like that scene where he says moose twit and you know, he said moose twat or where he's like, wear your badge on your deity.
3: on your deity. I, I, I was really trying to, f- I was trying to find if anyone could tell me what it is he said on the day that they turned into diety. Gotta
2: be Dick. It, it looks like his mouth says Dick and when he says fuck off i, I you know but I, I don't know
3: why they right would here. cut off
2: dick like that that the- maybe it was just too far you know i mean th- there's some pretty rough the- language in this movie and maybe the- those were just they on that scene. They were like, "This is too much. You got to do something with this."
3: Well, but they still leave in that. It's interest. It's an interesting thing about where we are in '77 that the two things that I think go over the line that they leave in and they seem proud of is when he talks about that he's gonna when he goes home he's gonna punch Junior's mom in the face, right? Because there's no way Junior could be from his loins, right? And I feel like. Like if you're gonna say all that, you could leave in Dick and don't have to sub in Dighty. So I'm I'm a little confused about what. what. Yeah, but the movie
2: is littered with that stuff. They keep talking about Sally Field's ass and you know Mm -hmm. like I don't know what's what kind of comments Burt Reynolds is making about Jerry (laughs) Reed's wife at the beginning. You know, it's like there's that's not the problem. It's misogynistic. Right. I, I'm, yeah, but but well, but I think "twat" and "Dick" in the same scene might have been a bridge too far for the censors at the time.
1: Well, well, okay. First off, uh, in 1977, the the things that would get you a PG versus an R are, you know, if you saw what the the standards were, you your head would explode in turn, and especially, yeah. I, I, in terms of. The audience that this was designed for, you know, which is you know, you know, Southern church folk. You know, it's amazing what Southern church folk will and will not abide. And you know, they can abide all sorts of levels of violence, but they will not abide cursing. Yeah, it's yeah, it, it's the most, it's the most bizarre, the the, the most uh, dissonant, dissonant. You know that. You, you you cannot reconcile those two concepts, but you know that is you know how mm. how it operates.
2: Or liberals, yeah, so. they don't want to buy that either.
1: Well, by the way, Mark, is
3: it Smokey two or Smokey three? Where there's this whole fucking sequence with the KKK, where they're not really the villains or their antagonists; they're just sort of like these good old boys chasing <laughs> somebody. Else. Right? Am I, am I am I misremembering that?
1: Well. I'm going. I am going to own up to the fact I have not seen Smokey two or three. Oh wow. Um, the but what you're describing for actually sounds like uh, one of the scenes from Bustin' Loose with Richard Pryor, where you know yeah, he's that too. You know, His his school bus is per- turned over, and the clan are coming after him, and he basically hoodwinks them into thinking all the kids are blind to help them get out of the mud. So. Uh, Right, but
2: it's different when you put Richard Pryor
3: in the middle of that. Yes, absolutely. And and, 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 yeah, yeah. And smoking the Bandit Part Three, there's a long sequence that features the Ku Klux Klan members attacking two black truck drivers, and it's tasteless and poorly done. And I'm just I'm reading off of IMDb, but that, yeah, (laughs) it's played for laughs, but not the laughs aren't coming at the expense of the KKK in smoking the Bandit Three. So that's like second sequel. They're still fucking. I mean, I think as the sequels as the sequels kept coming, they were even more and more focusing on just the South.
2: Smokey is the birth of the nation.
3: <laughs> yes, exactly. That that, that was.
2: The I mean, what thing. about the racism in this movie? Um, I think it's pretty good. You know pretty what I mean? Racism. Like when he, yeah, it's pretty good. Like when he's he's calling the sheriff boy, and yeah. he's like, "Oh, I I thought you'd be taller." Right. You know. I mean, that's. It's right, pretty cool,
3: and that's an okay. I mean, well, that at least is like. But but then he says, "What's the world coming to?" And then you're like, "Oh boy!" Right,
2: right. But which is you know, which yeah, you're right. That it's a subtle laugh line, and when you think of the audience that it's aimed at, mm-hmm. that might, it might be too subtle of a
1: laugh line. Yeah. Well, it's it, it's it, it's cutting both ways. The Northerners are going to laugh uh, laugh at Gleason. You know, the everyone else might be. You laughing with him? I huh, don't know. Huh. Um, well, and first off, the uh, the te- technically the I thought you'd be taller line uh, was already used by uh, Walter Matthau to Julius Harris in the Taking of Pelham One Two Three, which is uh, also one of the greatest movies of the '70s. That is just absolutely dripping with racism, but in the best way possible.
2: I uh, I love it. Uh, I love it for it. I love it for it. It's one of my would, favorites. What I
1: would what I would say is what I and what I like to tell people about the 70s is that you know the 70s we were we were existing in a kind of racial détente. You know that we had we had come out of the turbulence of the 60s uh, that you know we had we had seen uh, JFK, RFK uh, uh, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X killed, and all this other tumult, and eventually, I think all the races just kind of said, "You know what? Time out. All right, we're too tired." You know, I, I've like to tell people that <laughs> it's not enlightenment that ends racism; it's exhaustion. You know, where people don't completely get over their hate and prejudice. They just don't have the energy to act upon it. And, you know, it's just, okay, you black people live in my neighborhood and I don't trust you, but I'm too fucking tired to do anything about it. Here, have a beer.
2: Yeah, but what Pelham123 and Blazing Saddles are doing, and I think that they're doing, is they're talking about racism and they're laughing at racism and they're, and they're having a good time while they're talking about it. Something that we are incapable of doing today, um, and something we were incapable of doing after the '80s. And this might go to your point, Ben. With by the time smoking the bandage gone around to the the third version, you, we're in the '80s, and you can't fucking talk about it anymore because people don't know how to talk about it anymore. Not in an not in an honest, cheerful way, in the way that you know. Movies like Blazing Saddles and Pelham 123 were doing
1: well. It's be, well, it's because uh, in the 80s, Reagan broke the detente. <laughs> Seriously, him yes, and the of course, moral, him and the moral majority came in and you know, set and decided okay, well, we're we're going to act we're going to be actively racist again, <laughs> and All right, and you know, no, we, you know, we, we couldn't
2: have nice things.
1: That so that being said, the, the 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 racial comedy that takes place in Smokey, I you know, yeah, some of it does not work in our present idiom, but it does not bother me as much because I never feel like it is elevating you know the racists. It is always at the expense of the racists and it's showing th- it's showing, if not yo know, necessarily harmony, at least yo know, collegiality between everyone else. That yo know, the that everyone else, that everyone else in this movie, the sensible people, have gotten over their bullshit and they're concentrating on what's important, which is getting the bandit to the finish line.
3: No, I I agree. And let me point out this other thing. There's this. There is a great sequence where they are interrupt The chase is interrupted by this funeral procession.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
3: With all these black people, and they they know Smokey. They're friends with Smokey. They're on the CB with Smokey. And then even Gleason, when he when he has to stop and wait out the funeral procession, even he takes off his hat. Like he even shows the respect. Bandit,
1: Bandit. Yeah. It's not Smokey. <laughs> oh,
3: don't. oh sm- right, not Smokey. I'm sorry. They're, they're friends with Bandit. But, but Smokey takes off his hat and sort of pays pays some respect to the funeral procession, which I thought was a, a nice little gesture. <laughs> you did it again. <laughs> did I do it again? No, Smokey takes his No, Smokey takes his hat takes off. Smokey takes his hat off. Takes his takes head his head off. off. Yeah. No. Oh. Yes, no. he does. Oh, yes, he okay. does. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he also, okay, then, I mean, says, he it's, also then says right. he also it's then says he also then says if the guy had right. been cremated they could have saved a lot of time but
2: right which in itself is a pretty pretty racist it's, line
3: yeah so but i want to say here's the way to tell that this movie is of the 70s and not the 80s and it's right off the bat because this is this one of these movies like deliverance that yeah. starts with silence like it does right. not start with the musical theme. Like, if this movie had come out five years later, it would have kicked off with Eastbound and Down. By the way, the opening title s- song is not Eastbound and Down, which is amazing, like, in retrospect. It makes you wonder, did they not know what they had with Eastbound and Down? Like, how could they not start this movie with a with a rousing chorus of Eastbound and Down? But instead, they have this sort of, that downbeat man-called-bandit song. Um, right. But but the opening this thing is really like atmospheric. Like you're hearing the trucks rumbling. You're seeing all these like shots of the trucks. It's very sort of casual and lazy, but in a really great way. And in a way that you'd never get again after the '70s,
2: right? Right. Deliverance was something I thought of right away as well. It was probably because we just watched it a couple weeks ago. But I was like, oh my god, this is like another great Deliverance opening. Mm-hmm. And then quickly you're like, nah, this ain't deliverance. But for <laughs> no. a second, I was like, oh, this is going to be, you know, crafty yeah. and great.
3: Yeah. And then you see Paul Williams and Pat McCormick and you're like, oh, no, no, that's not the movie we're in.
2: Oh, <laughs> they are so good. Yeah. Big Ennis and Little Enos are great.
3: Yeah. What mm-hmm. I find funny about this movie, watching it this week, is like the first 10 minutes of this movie, at least, are pure exposition. Everyone walks around explaining what's going to happen for the next ninety minutes, and they do it over and over and over again. There's like five scenes in a row of everyone in this movie saying, "This is we got to get this beer." Like first, you see that one scene where that truck driver gets stopped and they like confiscate all his cores, right? And so that's that's telling you the whole plot of this movie in that scene. Then the then Big Enos and Little Enos also have that exact same conversation. We want to get some Big cores. Enos and, get... and
2: Little Enos. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> and and then you know and then then they then they explain themselves so there's that whole exposition all over again and it's like over and over and over again so that even the dumbest motherfuckers right. are going to understand what's happening but i have to say as a kid and even into my adulthood i glaze over all that every single time and i know as a kid i still didn't know what I didn't care it didn't matter to me but I had no idea what the fucking plot of this movie is like I don't I I never understood like the whole bootlegging thing and like why they have to get back and forth like it's so pointless and it's amazing to me how many different ways they try to explain it to the audience so that so that you can then stick stick with it for the rest of the movie. It's like a Larry
2: and the Cable Guy routine. You know, you keep setting it up over (laughs) and over and over and over. And you're like, I get it. You know, I got it after the first time. And he's like, no, no, no. You don't know who I'm talking to. I got to (laughs) set this joke up again. (laughs) And I got to do it again. And all right, it's the rule of three. No, I got to do it again.
1: Everyone knows by now that uh, this movie was uh, a big favorite of Hitchcock. And I think that... One of the re- one of the reasons he liked the movie was certainly because of its pacing, because of the banter between its cast, its momentum in terms of its chase, but I think also because of the fact that basically the first ten minutes of this movie, as you say, are setting up a MacGuffin. You know that it does, that. It's telling yeah. it's it's going to great pains to tell you what this is, even though ultimately. You know, you, you don't need to know what it is except for the fact that it's valuable. Everybody wants it and it needs to arrive at a certain time.
2: But it's Coors Light. Come on, guys. That's no, that's no
3: MacGuffin. No, it's, it's not Coors, it it's, it's not Coors Light. It's Coors Banquet. So Coors I'm Banquet. Sorry. God damn it. I'm sorry. <laughs> you blew the yeah. MacGuffin. My
1: God! You call it Coors Light. You keep calling Bandit Smokey. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> yeah, it's been a rough what, week. Uh, yeah. what, what we have here is a blatant disrespect for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's true. It's but true. Not,
3: not only did I not know that about Hitchcock till this week, the most exciting part of reading that Hitchcock story, which is that his daughter, like, after he died, you know, told people like, you know, Hitchcock would screen movies every Wednesday at his in his studio office and he loved *Smoky and the Bandit. And then the other 70s movie that he said he loved. And this warned my heart so much. This was the second movie we ever talked about on the show was Benji. And what? I remember, yeah, and I remember talking about Benji back in the early days of 70 movies in the 70s and saying that there's sequences in Benji which r- reminded me very much of Hitchcock. There's some very Hitchcockian stuff that goes on with Benji in this empty office building where he's like <laughs> locked in and he has to try to get out and, and warn the cops that the kids have been kidnapped. Are you laughing, Scott? Have you seen Benji? Benji it, is is a that why you saw Benji?
2: Because you heard it was Hitchcockian?
3: No, no. I saw Benji because it had my name in it. But, uh, the most but it, Hitchcockian known,
2: dog film ever made. There
3: probably is a, a, a review from the time that probably mentions Hitchcock.
2: Rex Reed says
3: Hitchcockian. Yeah. Mark, your thoughts on Benji? <laughs> uh,
1: you know, a, a, as a kid, I was trying to be too hipper than now to watch a Benji film, and that is to my re- uh. deep regret. So i I have not seen Benji, yeah. but... I can certainly follow the logic. Any really good filmmaker like a Hitchcock is going to understand when somebody working in a completely different genre understands their genre well and knows how to use effective storytelling techniques to keep the audience's attention. And yeah, Ah. that maybe George Lucas would have said that, yeah, you can get cheap heat in the movie by pointing a gun at a dog, but... When Ben when Benji is put in peril uh, 500 handkerchiefs come out of pockets Just like Douglas Sirk predicted So the first
3: thing we see Bert Reynolds Or her, her do is cackle That's the first thing he does And the first time we see Bert, He's on this hammock at this truck rodeo Which I had to look up and think And find out is this a real thing Because I'd never heard of it uh, Did you guys grow up with the concepts of, of truck rodeos Do you know what truck rodeos are R-O-A-D-E-O R O A D. Um, uh, no, no. Uh, we did not have they're, that. Sp- they're like rodeos, but with trucks. Like where truckers drive through like obstacles and shit. Yeah, you didn't yeah. have that, Mark.
1: We didn't have that specific thing in Cincinnati, but you know, we had we had demolition derbies. We had uh, you know event you know events where you know the monster truck and you truckosaurus would come in and people and. You know, these would be, you know, open air fairgrounds, sometimes even in a closed coliseum, you know, uh, so, uh, not that, so not that specific kind of event that Bird is taking place in, but, you know, I've seen similar, uh, one of the commentary tracks I did is for the Mark Lester, uh, movie Steel Arena, which is about demolition derby drivers and it's, a, uh, you know, a great little thing worth tracking down.
3: Cool. Um... I like to think of this first shot of, of Bert as like a metaphor for his film career where he's just sort of sleeping. He's on a hammock. He couldn't be any lazier. He's not putting any work into it. And the, and the money's just coming in. Like he's like, all he's got to do is, like literally his, his thing at this truck rodeo seems to be, I'll lay on this hammock and people can come look at me while I'll sleep and I'm picking up a paycheck for this, which is kind of like Bert in the movies. Hmm. And I was trying to think who is Bert Reynolds' closest counterpart in today's cinema, and I feel like it's got to be Bruce Willis, another guy who seemingly has horrible taste in screenplays and seems to just be sleepwalking through like twenty years of his career.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean,
3: uh, yeah, Burt Reynolds—he he really fucking r- rubs me the wrong
2: way. That that cackle is yeah. not funny. It, it just makes me. Think of just entitled <laughs> asshole who has, like when you, when, when Mark said that he likes to work, I don't think he'd like to work. I, I think th- he liked to collect money, but working was the last thing he wanted to do. And I, I think maybe some people uh, respond to that, but, but, but yeah, th- you know, it would get worse, you know, by the time it got to stoker ace or is it stroke race stroke stroke her race. I don't know, but it would get worse. But uh, you can see it happening here. You can see him him starting to curdle into that thing.
3: I mean, I think you're right in as far as Burt Reynolds seems to think that his part of this movie is this sort of screwball romantic comedy and that he and Sally Field are Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert and it happened one night. But if you watch it happen one night, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, backstory for those characters and there's a lot of interaction between them. That has, uh, listen, uh, and I'm not the biggest defender of that movie either, but I mean, it, it, yes, you can say economy, you can say that Needham and Reynolds have like whittled it down to its bare essentials, but I think it goes beyond that. It's incredibly threadbare. Like their whole relationship in this movie is built on nothing and goes almost nowhere. It's sort of like, You know, it's sort of like it's what you it's what you think about most romantic comedies where people meet cute and then suddenly they're in love and you're not quite sure how it happened. But this movie, more than maybe most of those other ones, is like, how did this happen? Why? What's with these people?
2: They weren't dating before this movie, were they?
1: Sally and Bert in real life. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Uh, That I don't know.
1: No, they 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 were not a couple until after the movie. Yeah, I think this would kind of set everything in motion. You know, I would counter that. You know, maybe there isn't a whole lot of you know backstory on either of these characters, and there's you know a definite you know stretching of credibility in terms of you know how they they come together. But I don't. I don't really think that matters. It's that no. In, I don't either. In this, in this setting, in this presentation, it's a, it's a, bree, it's just a breezy combination of these, you know, opposite type characters who find, you know, this chemistry in their complete lack of common ground. That you know that they're that she's out of, she's already out of her element, you know, as she hints in talking about her. You know, her career, her failed career as a Broadway performer. And, you know, it's a world totally, totally removed, you know, from what The Bandit has. But still kind of fascinated by because in that opening scene where he's trying to, you know, talk snowman into joining him. He says, you know, we're going to be like Lester and Earl, or you know, Rod, you know, Roger Rogers and Astaire. You know that he's got that kind of mm. glamour in his mind, but that's not what he's aspired to. You know, he's aspired. He's living a right. Scruggs life when, but he's always been right. kind of curious about you know the Astaire and Rogers life, and now here is Sally Field in a lower rent version embodiment of it. Right, yeah, well, but
2: it seems like Bert is always playing it as if he's above her. Like I never get the feeling that he's like, "Oh, this is an interesting woman." I get the feeling that he's like, "Why won't she shut the fuck up?"
1: I don't feel like he. I don't ever get the feeling that he's above her. I feel like he's definitely kind of amused by her. That he's never encountered anyone mm. like her. You know that you know that he's, but he. It's it's some. It's the element he was not expecting when he you know took this assignment and it's making the whole trip that much more interesting because I mean partly because you know it's brought in a huge complication in uh, you know Buford you know tracking them across states that he has no jurisdiction in. But you know he he yeah. he's he lives for the rush, and you know he is getting all this extra endorphins from this because you know if nothing had happened, if they had just gone and gotten the beer and then you know sped back, you know he would have gotten the money, but there wouldn't you know it would have been just another day at the office. It's like I got a girl, I got a guy chasing me. No, this is this is excitement. <laughs> this is what right. this is what I got into this line of work for.
2: And he does go for the double or nothing with the Boston clam chowder at the end. So, yeah,
3: that tracks. There's, um, the, the, I go back and forth between trying to figure out watching this movie to in today's world whether this movie is amazingly prescient or it's more of like boy nothing has changed and whole we you know we think all these red state versus blue state culture war things are 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 relatively new and pronounced this movie is all about that shit it's amazing to me that he's wearing this red shirt and she's wearing this blue shirt for the entire fucking movie. Like, it couldn't be any more like, here's the red state, here's the blue state. And all they're doing is bouncing back and forth with these cultural references. She's talking about Stephen Sondheim, and he's talking about, you know, Lester and Earl Scruggs. And that's like, the, that's their whole fucking chemistry, and that's their whole, like, war of words, and that's their whole, like, uh, you know, opposites attract thing. It's all about, like, the, the coastal culture versus, uh, you know, the South and, I guess, the Midwest. But then um, they
2: meet on the spinners.
3: Yes, yeah, yes, there's common ground. Of course there's common ground. <laughs> uh, you know, but I think that's, that's fun and interesting. And what I also delight in is that in the 70s, uh, people were, were, were feeling free in, in movies to make these pop culture references that date back to the 30s. You know, in 1977, yep, right. they're talking about Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Uh, you know, and that was, what, 40 years before this movie was made or 50 years you know can you think about movies that are made today possibly doing that same sort of pop culture reference referencing stuff from 40 or 50 years ago i mean they do it they do it because they want to steal shit so like the fucking asshole who did joker is stealing all of those scorsese 70s things but he's not making, you know, he, the characters aren't talking about that stuff. Like, everyone's going to know what they mean. It's I, I love the fact that in 77, Reynolds can be talking about Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and, and figure that everyone's going to know. Like, five-year-olds to 50-year-olds are going to know what he's talking about. Like, that but people not happen still, today.
2: People would still know who Astaire and Rogers are, but what, what's mm, the no, one I that, don't
1: know about that, man. Well, I
2: don't know
3: that anyone talk, would try in a movie I, to even I, use that.
2: I don't want to be in a room with those people then.
1: Well, be, before we taped this, uh, I watched a, a YouTube reactor watching uh, Smokey and the Bandit for the first time, and uh, they did not know either uh Flatt and Scruggs or Astaire and Rogers, but that's fine. You know, it's like, you know, be, who? we are <laughs> people who we are brought record up-
3: themselves on YouTube watching something or listening to somebody the first time. There's a whole thing reaction videos
2: what, what 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 was the broderick what, what was the one that that he says he says uh where jackie gleason says who he is and he's like i don't care if you're something broderick crawford right that was the one that i really dug yeah
1: and well they didn't get that reference I: oh, well, no i mean, wouldn't think they but, would that was look, my point yeah, I mean, even back then that was a deep cut. That maybe Dan Aykroyd got that reference <laughs> because he loves highway patrol. <laughs> That's about it. One of the disparities that we deal with is that in in nineteen seventy seven we had cultural curation. That you know, you in most parts of the country you didn't have cable TV, you had you know, three network stations, two independent stations if you were lucky, and, you know, a lot of reruns and a lot of movies, and everybody kind of got the same canon. So everybody would was caught up on the same stuff, and even if you didn't necessarily like westerns or musicals, <coughs> you were aware of them because that was all that was on. Now, because everything you are you you're on your own to find the stuff that you're interested in not everybody is on the same page so we don't have the same common canon anymore and you know there's there's upsides and downsides to that you know the upside is that you know for years the cultural canon was dominated by a bunch of white dudes and now everybody gets to you know, find people that interest them and their own cultural background. The downside is that uh, people miss out on a lot of stuff because it wasn't presented to them.
2: I still, I don't buy the, that people don't know stair Rogers. I don't buy it, and uh, I don't want to buy it is is the point that I'm trying to make. I refuse to buy it. Fuck those people well, that don't know who they are.
1: Uh, no, no. Don't fuck those people. Tell oh, yes. them. Don't don't make it is not don't make it an exclusive club. Oh, I'm
2: leaving. I'm leaving as soon as that happens. No,
1: don't make it an exclusive club. Okay, it's I not just an exclusive saw...
2: club. Those are the same people yes, that it... will tell you it was no. Be- no it no. was before my time. D- that they'll say things like that. I'm like, oh, okay, no. all right, I'm out.
1: Yeah, you're, you're you are gatekeeping by doing that. You are bloody gatekeeping. I'm <laughs> not. I'm, yes, I'm, you are I'm because you are automatically deciding Where are you going, that someone what do you mean you're who leave? has never you previously
2: not
0: gay. <laughs> you are deciding
1: that someone who has never heard of Fred Astaire is beneath you. It's, and instead of just saying yes, yes, oh, I am exactly. If you don't know who Fred Astaire is, he's an amazing. He's an amazing dancer. Here's some stuff of his to peruse. Come check it out. I think you'll like it. That last night I saw Edgar Wright's uh, Sparks documentary, so did which I. is amazing, really great movie. It's okay, and <laughs> you are just determined to gainsay me tonight at this point. <laughs> but I feel like people have been
2: trying to sell me on Sparks since I was eight, and I, I don't know.
3: I saw. I haven't seen the Sparks documentary yet. Okay, well. But I did see Edgar Wright talk about his top ten Sparks songs, and 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 Edgar Wright completely skips over in his own personal uh, opinion of Sparks of all the stuff that I did like from Sparks in the, like the late seventies and mid eighties, all their like stuff that w- like when they were on Saturday Night Live playing songs, and when they did have a couple of like uh, alt alt rock hits, college rock hits in the eighties. Like
2: I he not all that stuff's any- in the movie though. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty exhaustive, right, Mark?
1: Yes. My point is, is that at the end of the film, uh, someone who I was very lucky to know personally, who unfortunately is no longer with us, a man named Gary Stewart, he says, you know, when, when it comes to Sparks, it is not, and he finds out that someone has discovered their stuff. To him, it's not about, oh, I was into them for, you know, 20 years. Where were you? It's like, Oh, that's terrific. Right. You've learned about sparks. Here's some more. Have some have listen to these albums. You know, be welcoming. That it and that's how I feel that if someone is unaware of a cultural figure that would seem ubiquitous, my first impulse is just tell them who they are. Maybe they'll like it.
2: Well, I was joking. <laughs>
1: Um
3: you know what I think would have been cool if they had if Smoking the Bandit 2 had been like a Halloween two style sequel <laughs> okay. where, where it picked up right where this one ended and they go to Boston and to get that clam chowder and that the majority of it takes place in the northeast and it's Sally Fields home turf and and, and Burt Reynolds is the fish out of water.
2: That would have been great. Wouldn't that have been
3: great? I mean, that would have at least been, like, the Crocodile Dundee sequels. Oh, (laughs) yeah, which are great.
1: (laughs) I think that is a capital idea.
3: Mark, you can't comment because you didn't see the... the No, but I
1: read the Wikipedia synopsis, and I think you have the better idea. Because what I saw in that Wikipedia synopsis is that they basically were making the same mistake that almost every comedy sequel does, which is... They make the same movie all over again instead right. of expanding upon what they first created. Well,
2: one of my favorite jokes in this movie is the way uh, you know Pat McCormick's, like Paul Williams is his his son, right? Yeah.
3: <laughs> okay. Theoretically,
2: yeah. And, and, this is my this is my boy, this, and and Jackie Gleason. This is my, don't talk that way in front of my young son. It's like. That is my favorite Southern joke in this movie That they keep over and over And like don't talk that way in front of my boy It's like your boy is 35
3: With a great mustache Yeah (laughs) Uh, I was trying to figure out What other movies have Biker bikes getting knocked down Outside of the roadhouse Pee-wee's Big Adventure (laughs) Pee-wee's And does it happen in every which way but loose I feel like it has to It's got to It has to.
1: Uh, I think it happens in Scavenger Hunt. Oh, okay. Good one.
3: Uh, I I, I... I thought you were going to say Scanners. (laughs) I wish it happened in Scanners.
1: You know, that's the only thing that can make
3: Scanners better.
1: (laughs) Cronenberg's a gearhead, so I bet he might have put that in one of his movies if he would thought of it.
3: I mean, Crash is really just one big
1: not right. the bike bikes right. <laughs> Yeah, F- Fast Company is a Cronenberg stock car racing movie. It's Will- it's William Smith and John Saxon and cars. It's not horror.
3: <laughs> so you guys did, did you love? I mean I I as I said earlier, I was not a a gearhead. I was not into cars. Nobody in my family was into cars, but when that fucking Trans Am comes out of the truck at the beginning, I mean, it took my breath away. Like that to me, a guy who doesn't care about cool cars, I'm like, this is a cool fucking car. And I think also, uh, I'd already been I'd already been a fan of the Rockford files, so I was like, Oh yeah, this is kinda like Rockford's car, but even cooler because it's got these fucking things coming out of the hood. And it's got this cool firebird painted on the on the hood.
2: Scott, right, but this that, is the movie that introduced all that stuff, right?
3: Yes. Although yeah. I think Rockford Files must have been earlier, right,
1: Mark, Edward, Hoyk? Uh, God damn it. Uh, I believe the Rockford Files was earlier, but, you know, his was a Camaro. So that's Chevrolet, you know, Firebird was Pontiac, and, you know, the the Firebird was the, the you know, the sexed-up version of the Camaro.
3: No, I think the Trans Am was the sexed-up version of the Firebird. I don't think Camaro comes into it. Well,
1: I mean, it's the same body style. Okay. You know, but I'm Rockford they're, Files they're, car. they're the same body style.
3: Yeah, they're Pontiac. The Rockford Files is also a Pontiac.
1: You know, between the five divisions of GM, they were using the same designs and just u- putting different names on them for the four divisions. So, you know, the Monte Carlo would be the same as uh the Riviera, you know, you know from Pontiac to Buick to Cadillac, you know they'd just be they'd just be you know changing names all over the place.
3: What do you got there, Scott?
1: Uh, I'm looking
3: up the Diablo sandwich. Oh, I already, there's a whole thing. There's a whole web page devoted to that sandwich. Yes, and an investigation of such and whether there really was a sandwich and what it would have been. And the guy decided it must be pulled pork with some kind of barbecue sauce. And there's plenty of sauce. All over that thing. But he's got pulled like pork st- and hot sauce on a hamburger bun.
2: Yeah. Sounds pretty
3: good. He's got some amazing screen grabs of uh, Gleason's mouth like in close up and like that. There's like <laughs> there's like stringy stuff hanging off his lips. And that's why he decided it was pulled pork.
2: When it came to eating Gleason was very method.
3: Yeah. Oh, he's totally well, eating that fucking thing. What about Dukes of Hazard? Yeah, I never got into Dukes of Hazard. Did you watch that show?
2: I did. I did watch it, but I mean, the question is, w- would Dukes of Hazard have happened without this movie? I mean, I know that this was not the template for Dukes of Hazard. It was Moonrunners, but um, I mean, this definitely kickstarted that happening.
3: It's got to be. It's got to be the reason for Duke Moonrunners
2: came out in '75 and it was shot in '73, and it's basically the, the blueprint for Dukes of Hazard. But you know, like. The whole thing with the, the starting off with the music, the very sort of laconic I mean that's that's definitely smokey in the bandit.
3: Yeah. It's the southern culture and the C B culture.
1: There there's enough of a gap between yep. There's enough of a gap between uh, the release of Smokey and the Bandit and the premiere of Dukes of Hazard that I don't think one directly causes the other. I think it's the culmination of Smokey, uh, the knockoffs that come from it, and you know just kind of already the existing car culture that was. In place going back to what made Moonrunners possible, that they decided, okay, we've reached enough critical mass that we could get a TV show out of this.
3: Do you want to hear the dismissive New York Times review of smoking and the Bandit that, that I'd love to came hear. out on Friday, May 20th? They gave it to like the third string critic, Lawrence Van Gelder. I don't even know who that is. Right, exactly. Uh, Burt Reynolds plays King of Road in Motor Mayhem Tale. That's the headline. Whenever the weather starts to turn warm and Americans begin to take to the roads and drive-ins again, the Hollywood assembly line disgorges another series of movies that employ cars as stars. In the case of the latest example, Smokey and the Bandit, which opened yesterday at the Radio City Music Hall... The advertising and publicity would have it that the principal performers are Burt Reynolds, Sally Field, Jackie Gleason, and Jerry Reed. But that is misleading. This is a movie for audiences capable of slobbering over a Pontiac Trans Am, 18-wheel tractor-trailer rigs, dismembered police cruisers, and motorcycles. It's also for moviegoers likely to use one hand to pound armrests with sheer zest of a race against time involving 400 cases of of Coors beer. And the other hand to smite thighs with glee at what happens when a couple of good old boys and a uh, past, what? What happens when a couple of good old boys and a something pursuing redneck sheriffs and state troopers match alleged wits? And just in the event that there is somebody out there incapable of recognizing the difference between a 6.6 liter Trans Am and a Hudson Terraplane or a new Peterbilt rig and a decrepit Rio truck, there is sufficient use of CB radios to let everyone know that while Smoking the Bandit may not be a very original motor mayhem movie, it is at least a new one. Mr. Reynolds playing Bandit, a driver of legendary skill, takes on a... An $80,000 bet that requires him to race 1,800 miles from Georgia to Texas and back in a span of 28 hours, returning with the aforementioned beer. Bandit commandeers his friend Cletus to drive his rig while he takes the wheel of a Trans Am to act as the blocker or diversionary force. When Smokey, the law, turns up. All proceeds smoothly until the homebound trip when Bandit picks up a runaway bride-to-be touching off interstate pursuit by her prospective father-in-law, an outraged Texas sheriff named Buford T. Justice who was accompanied by the bridegroom-to-be his hulking nincompoop of a son Mike Henry. By the way, has Mike Henry ever been in any other movies? Uh, I don't know. I I could look it up. He's pretty bad. I think it's. Mike, I think he's he's impressively bad. I feel like he's such a great kind of stiff. I think there's a picture of him on the Amazon thing, and and he's
2: like sort of like a Steve Reeves sort of beefcake thing. So he might have done.
3: Beefcake well, he was Tarzan. He seems day. like a Lyle Wagner kind of guy. Oh, okay. There you go. Oh. Mark
1: knows. Yeah. He he played he played in uh, three late sixties Tarzan movies. All oh, right, nice.
2: that makes total nice. sense. There you go.
3: With Mr. Reynolds playing it cool and Mr. Gleason doing his burns and investing the film with a certain raunchy humor, the rest is up to the vehicles, and they don't do anything that hasn't been seen before. The movie is rated PG. Despite its regional settings and characters, Smokey and the Bandit abounds with scatology, profanity, and obscenity, neither uncommon to the streets of New York nor unknown to most of its inhabitants from the ages of two onward, or unspoken by most of them at one time or another.
2: There you go. I've read that review before. Oh, you have? I have. And and I, re- I remembered it when you, you uh, talked about using one hand to snap yeah. the armrest and then the other. I was like, <laughs> oh, well, at least this uh, person is admitting that people can do, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah. Typical <laughs> New Yorker.
3: Yeah. What a snob. What a fucking... a snob. Of course, Man. his name is Lawrence Van Gelder. Lawrence. I mean, I his
2: name is. So I was looking at the cast and you know how I was... We were talking about the uh the heat stuff earlier. Yeah. Do you know who plays Branford's deputy? Sheriff George Branford's deputy, Michael Mann. All right? Let's just Wow. You thought I was joking? Wow. Maybe I wasn't. Wow. That's mind-blowing. Says it right here. It's got to be the same Michael Mann. There's no way that they're going to be two different Michael Manns.
3: I think we should try to find all the connections between Smokey and the Bandit and Heat and, and put up an argument that Heat is actually a, a remake of Smokey and the Bandit in many I'm
2: ways. I'm with you. I, I, I can well, totally see it. I once had
1: I once had a fantasy that um, I used to work in a uh, three-screen theater in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, I had this fantasy once that every screen was playing a different incarnation of Heat. So, one screen was playing the De Niro Pacino movie. Another was playing the Burt Reynolds uh, Heat. And then the third was playing the Joe D'Alessandro Heat. Ah. That's some fantasy, Mark.
3: Holy it's mackerel. That's not bad.
2: <laughs> All right. What, what is the best, what, what is everybody's favorite stunt in this movie?
3: I okay, that's a great question. I'll tell you the worst one, the one that the, the one that seems lamest. I feel like for the most part, this has got some pretty good car chase stunts. I don't like the 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 first one, which is where this black guy is sitting on a pier, and for no mm. real reason, he just sort of jumps off into the into the water. I'll, I'll say I'll say I think it's tied for for I have a two way tie for my favorite stunt. One is the one where the cop car lands on the flatbed truck. That's yes. pretty fucking awesome. And the other one is the whole football field thing, which I was watching a, a little Jesus featurette Christ. and discovered they, that that was real. <laughs> I mean, they were totally out of control. They didn't realize the grass was going to be so slippery, and that fucking car went right into that dugout, um, and, and people almost got killed. So I would say those two. Uh, I regret to inform you,
1: it's not the same Michael Mann. Oh well, we I to know. Out. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite? Stunt, I looked Mark? him up. Yeah. He 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 played Rabbi Jacobs on all in the family.
3: <laughs> oh, okay.
1: Well, there you go. Um my uh my favorite stunt um it's well it's a little pedestrian I guess cuz most people would say it but it's it's got to be the bridge jump. I mean, that I mean that like we've seen dozens of them ever since, but that first time you know, when I saw it, you know, the only the modern equivalent I would put in mm. is that moment in uh, Furious Six when you know the Michelle Rodriguez goes flying, and you know, th- we just have that beautiful moment where I actually yelled out, in, when I yelled out in the theater, "Fuck you, Gravity! I'm Vin Diesel."
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's a great shot too. I'm psyched for the new Fast and Furious. Oh, it looks pretty. Good. I got my ticks. What's your favorite stunt, Scott?
2: Oh, I I agree with you. I, I, it's it's got to be the... cop the, car uh, on the flatbed. Yeah 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 yeah. But I but I also am troubled by the by the one with the black guy fishing. But you know, I was looking up the stuff from uh, Man with the Golden Gun, and there is a shot and. Uh, Tell me, is this possible? Is this true? But it's from '74, and the car goes. It does a, a a a bridge jump. The bridge is out, but it's a corkscrew thing, and the car does a corkscrew. And that's in '74. There's no way that's real, is it? Do, do you know what I'm talking about? I know exactly Look what that you're up. talking about. No, I know that what you're talking about. One of the most incredible stunts I've ever seen.
3: Corkscrew jump and man with the golden gun was a real. Stunt. It was a behind the scenes I've got a behind the scenes of the groundbreaking stunt article here.
2: So what is the thing that Nita moved out of filmmaking and when he focused his energy on this thing called the World Land Speed Record Project? What, what is that? Do you guys know what that is? No.
1: Hmm. I, I wanna what? say that I wanna say that might have been covered in uh the the documentary that was made about uh the movie. But I, I'm I'm not recalling. Uh, it, I I wanted to put in a plug. If uh, the 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 best edition of the movie to get is uh, the 40th anniversary Blu-ray, because that has an amazing feature-length documentary called The Bandit, which is not only about the making of the movie, but about what it meant to Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham and the friendship that they had up to that point and how you know interdependent they were on each other. It's just like really goes above and beyond the call of what a retrospective documentary on a film like this should be. And the, the new 4K HD does not have that doc on it. So, you know, take a step down in quality in order to learn something interesting. But... Because it doesn't talk about the land speed record, but it does talk about this failed doll that Hal Needham was trying to sell. That Hal Needham had gotten one of the major toy companies to back a stuntman doll. That you that I think Dick Van Dyke did uh, the pitch reel for it. It was a doll that could you know you could put through you know the, you know miniature you know, Western sets and jump over stuff, you know, kind of like the evil Knievel bikes, but the, the the toy never took off.
2: Well, speaking of the Needham and Reynolds thing, do we need to talk about the Cliff Booth, Rick Dalton thing, or is that just too obvious to talk about?
3: Let's talk about it, because I was well, going to ask about it, because I couldn't remember if that's the relationship that, that that's based on, or there was some other stuntman actor relationship.
1: It's a relationship, but it's not the relationship. Uh, it's he. I don't know why he is, you know, playing at cagey, but um, uh, some some of it is based off of uh, Kurt Russell's stunt man. Uh, some of it is based on a guy named Gary Kent, who went on to uh, make uh, low budget films of his own, and, uh, and who, is, who and, is Gary
2: Kent stunt man for?
1: Um. I don't know if there was one specific actor that he was the regular stunt man for, but he was a longtime uh, stunt man who went on to make his own films. You know that that hmm. it's 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 an amalgam of both you know stunt stuntmen and you know people you know people who had relationships with their stunt man in one capacity or another so it's not really fair to say oh it's this guy it, it, it's a bunch of guys uh when 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 once upon a time in hollywood was on the way to being released uh the new beverly was screening several movies that had been influential in the story's creation and i was writing notes about them and and all these actors that came into play you know all these uh 60s square jawed football player actors who got left aside when uh you know counterculture actors started becoming bankable i had a bunch of i had a bunch of my favorite quotes from the movie uh or
3: quotes that i had questions about well of course i like 68 extra fat and size 12 dwarf which is the first (laughs) burt reynolds one-liner um I was curious about Jerry Reed saying, "What are we going to do? Kidnap the Pope?" and wondering if that happened to be a reference to Gone with the Pope, that Duke Mitchell movie. Um,
1: I don't think, I don't think it's a reference to that. However, um, uh, you know what? What Duke Mitchell never owned up to is that I think it it didn't reach the market until after uh, Smokey and the Bandit was released, but there was a bestseller. By Robert Ludlum, the guy who wrote, uh, you know, the Holcroft Covenant and the Born Identity. And the, uh, he wrote a book mm-hmm. called The Road to Gandolfo about a bunch of guys who do kidnap the Pope and do demand a dollar in ransom from every Catholic. So...
2: Aha! Uh, what about Charles Shire working on, on, on the script on this movie? Something I, I never realized until seeing it this time
3: did you know that uh yeah actually i was asking jim healy about that today and he was saying you know because i was saying what what is a good sort of what what's a good screwball comedy for me to watch in in trying to trying to see what reynolds might have been referencing you know with his whole with the whole sally field thing because i was like you know it feels like it happened one night maybe i think that's right on yeah, and and he was like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know what Reynolds was thinking, but of course Charles Shire wrote on this thing, and he was totally into classic Hollywood and blah blah right. blah. Right? So, yeah. Burt Reynolds has this line where every time I hear it, I have to stop and think about what is what is he saying, and it's not that <laughs> it's not that funny, and it's more obvious than I feel like it than I make it. But he said, you know, the first thing he says to to Sally Field, he says, "The last time I saw legs like that, they had a message tied to them." And I always have to stop and say, what does that mean? And I think he's referencing, like, carrier pigeons. Like, he's saying she has scrawny legs, like a pigeon. But then he says his legs are skinnier, right? Right, because she doesn't have scrawny legs. So I don't know what the fuck that
1: joke even is. Mark, Edward, (laughs) Foyke? I wouldn't put it past him that it is a skinny leg joke because... uh, well, remember one of uh, the great uh, Joe Tech's songs was "Skinny Legs" and all, and I love, and you know the story mm-hmm. behind that <laughs> is, you know when you know there's this crowd that's reacting to it, and the story is that you know the Atlantic Records crew had done the song and they thought it was missing something they. You know, invited a bunch of people off the street, and they gave them food and booze, and played them this song, and they just started laughing at it. And they said, "Yeah, we need to put that in there." So, I think you know, having skinny legs would be a southern uh-huh. thing. Uh, or I, there's an old uh, Fanny Flag bit where she's uh, playing a cashier, talking to a friend of hers, and every time you know she rings up an item, it's supposed to be a you a punchline on what they've just talked about. Like, Oh, I saw your daughters marching in the parade yesterday. They're so pretty frog legs.
3: <laughs> right. Uh, and then here's a great, it, I think it's the first thing that Jackie Gleason says. And it's one of my favorite things. He gets up, he gets out of the car and he says, hold up on that car wash, gentlemen, which makes me laugh every time. Cause it's such a weird, funny thing for him to say to these guys who are about to dismantle, uh, that car. And then Burt Reynolds says, this ain't no seat cover, because Jerry Reed's asking what's next. This ain't no seat cover, I'm sitting next to Lawrence of Arabia, which is another one of these. Like, okay, that movie was, what, 20 years old at that point? Not that old. Wasn't it like about 10 years
2: old at that point? Uh, Lawrence of Arabia, 62
1: or 68? It would have been early 60s, but it would have... Been playing on television multiple times. I think, like I can remember as a kid, that you know ABC ran it about once a year, you know, as one of their events. So, right, I, I, it would have been something in the popular consciousness.
2: What about we both like half my face? How about that that line? Yeah, that's pretty good.
3: That's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. Uh, Gleason says he's talking about. What the problems with Sally Field and 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 he says it happens every time a dancer starts poontanging around with yeah. and I don't even know what the rest of the line is, but I don't think I've ever heard poontang as a verb before. No, Poontanging it's, around. Well, that's that's one that I've never heard before since.
1: <laughs> yes, Mark. Well, that well that well that's the that's the genius of Bert that he can use words in a way that they weren't. Uh, intended. Uh, oh, know, oh, I, oh, I think of uh, hold you on, said banned it when yeah, you, you meant first. <laughs>
2: it's Jackie.
1: Okay, point taken. We're even. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> but I but think that of, is the uh, genius of Gleason. all right. Yes.
2: Yes. When he calls her a koozie, ugh.
1: You remember that a koozie is also something you put around your beer to keep it cold. So. Uh, that's a double right. entendre.
2: right exactly
1: um, it,
2: it certainly is and in a movie about cores, it's a pretty good one
3: Great Gleason line uh, he's complaining about all the damage and all the cost to them and he says I de- you know we, we I was I decorated the whole town at a cost of forty dollars that made me laugh yeah <laughs> Oh that is pretty good um so he must, he must say possums pecker at some point which it seems to me if possum's pecker could be in the movie that he could have said dick if that's what he See, meant. See
2: that's what I'm saying they let him get away with one pecker. Mm. You know, he they'd reach their limit and twat and dick they're like all right that's enough. Right. You know, I mean does that not make, that makes sense, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, well oh well, George Carlin had the bit about the seven words you can't say on television and then he added that there were three more fart turd and twat. You know, twat's twat and that's, that's right. that. But, you know, you, you know,
2: now we have these rules that you can only say fuck so many times before you get an R rating. I mean, you know, once it was a lot looser in the 70s, but maybe there was a certain amount. And it's like, all right, you've reached that amount. Do something about that line.
1: I've, language was definitely at harder than sex or violence. Okay. I I I, 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 I I can I can I no, can say I'm, that. Uh, look at
2: all the president's men, though. You know, like they, they say they say fuck a lot more than most R-rated movies than you'll see now, and I think it was just because they were looking at the the subject matter and they're like, okay, you can get away with that. Um, I think it was. I think m- be- much more on a case by case basis back then what was all the
1: president's case of all of all the president's men is that it was in the public record so it was like well i mean this is what was actually said so you know what are we gonna do pretend that they said something else that would be that would be lying
3: right sure so when they make the eventual movie about the cheerleader who just won her case in the supreme court they can use all those swear words she used in her Social media post.
1: Sure, it almost the, it. it's still going to get an R rating. The positively true adventure of the fucking cheerleader mom.
3: Yes, is it the uh, is it the black uh, sheriff who says something about things? Uh, it's not germane to the to this. And then Gleason says the goddamn <laughs> yeah. Germans got nothing to do with it. Yeah, that's a good one. I,
2: you know I, what, You're turning my you're turning me around on this. This is you. actually pretty good. Yeah, so Gleason, I, wanna I think I'm going to watch it again right away. After-
3: I was amazed today in looking up a bunch of this stuff to figure out whether it was already in the lexicon or um that this is the movie that started this stuff. How much of these things actually started right here with this movie, but are have really become like these Choke things. and puke? Choke and puke. That's exactly puke, That's dude. exactly the one. Yes. Yep.
2: I was like, Wow, is this where this started? Yes. Um what, what's the other one where he says like I I gotta I gotta and on, 10, uh, g- 10 100
3: 10 200 there's all that stuff What's but, but he Jerry says he got to say something
2: he oh he's got to get some go juice and 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 pour some something down his neck hole
3: yeah go juice and i forget what the other thing is but it's the i might have it written down later it's pretty stellar away. i love when jackie Gleason walks out of the restaurant and he's got the toilet paper attached to his glasses <laughs> And the waitress comes chasing after him, and he says, Thank you, nice lady. <laughs> that just makes me laugh. Um, uh, Daddy, the top came off is, is is maybe the best line that Junior has in the home.
1: Yeah. The, the, the beautiful yes, thing about those two gags that you you're, you brought up is the fact that it's not the gags themselves, per se, because they're kind of cheap. It's the way that they're delivered. It's that... It, it, you know, with the toilet paper, mm-hmm. it's that you know th- the waitress is just so nice about it. Oh, here, let me take care of that. And you know, Gleason has you know his, his dignity has been offended, but he can't take it out on this you know woman. She hasn't done anything, so he's just seething, but has to be polite yeah. to her. Sure. And just the absolute—it's just the absolute cluelessness with the way Junior Justice says, "Top came off, Daddy." <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but Gleason's not even that
2: offended. It's almost like it's ha- it happens to him all the time. You know, there, there's an A part and a B part to that joke, and the and the A part you know sends most of the people laughing, but the B part is where when you watch it again and he says "Thank you, nice lady," you're like wait, that's the funny part of this scene.
3: Yeah. But by the way, he then gilds the lily because that scene goes on a little further. He then turns around and looks at her as she's walking away and he says something about her ass. Nice ass, yeah. right. And it's like, okay, dude, you didn't need to, that, that that part should have been cut. Like, you already got the laugh line. You know the know movie's what I mean? full of that. Yes.
1: Well, isn't, isn't that kind of a, a throwback to uh, when we first see uh, Sally Field? And, you know, that it's like this one moment of symmetry between these two antagonists.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because Burt Reynolds comments on her ass right away. Like, she's climbing into the backseat and he's...
2: And then Jerry Reed comments on it later on. Right,
3: right. Speaking of Jerry Reed, he's got... uh, a charming thing, which I didn't look up, but I wouldn't be surprised if it started with this like a CB thing. He says, A Kojak with a Kodak is coming your way. Pretty good. I like that one. Everything
2: he says is, is charming, though. He, he kind of like, Yeah. He is the most likable guy in the
3: movie. Uh, Burt Reynolds has this line uh, when he's talking to Jackie Gleason, and Jackie Gleason's at the gas station, and he says, Are you familiar with the initials F O? Which is pretty funny But reminded me of the much better joke In The Odd Couple Yes uh, Which is (laughs) I've been looking at this thing all night Trying to figure out why you wrote F-U It took me all night to figure
2: out What F-U means No, it took me me all day To figure out that F-U means Felix Unger That's a joke It's one of my favorites That's great Oh, and and uh charles shire used to write for the
3: odd couple. Ah. But now is that a, is that an odd couple show line or is that an odd couple movie line? No, it's from the play. Oh, it's. Okay. But but if you'd worked
2: on the the show, you definitely would have read the play.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Sure. I have heard right. I have heard urban legends that one of the episodes of the odd couple has a reference to the aristocrat's joke. Oh yeah. <laughs> It's that Felix and Oscar are going into a talent agent's office and like this family act walks out and you know the the the, the person at the desk is saying, Oh, that was oh, that was uh the aristocrats. <clears throat> you know, that, that, I, 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 I I haven't seen the footage. You know, it could be an urban legend, it could be legitimately suppressed when they figured out what it is, but I, I have I have seen that story in print.
3: Okay, the last little note I had was I like when and I don't know that this is deliberate at all, but uh, they're talking about what if they were stuck on an island together and Burt Reynolds says it would never it'd never be boring. But while he's saying that he looks more bored than he's ever been in any movie like he's he couldn't look any more bored when he says it'd never be boring with the two of them on an island.
2: Yeah, it's not a good scene. And, you know, you're turning me around on, on a lot of the stuff in this Sorry. movie, but yeah. that's one
3: thing that I can't be turned around on. It's, that's chem- a really. The chemistry between Field and, and Reynolds leaves you cold. A little bit, which is,
2: which is weird because I know something was happening, but, you know, th- that doesn't necessarily mean it translates to the screen. You know, we've seen plenty of examples of that.
3: Well, they do have that kiss, which really looks awkward. It's one yeah. of those, like, they're really smashed together and it just looks like it hurts and you don't know why they're, they're shoving each other's faces into each other as hard as they are. Like, you know somebody's lips were torn on some fucking teeth in that kiss. Or a mustache. Or a
1: mustache, yeah. I will give it the benefit of the doubt in that it, you know, when when that line is delivered it's 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 one of those moments where all right you know when when are we gonna get when are we gonna get to brass tacks you know we're we're dancing around everything and now you're just prolonging the inevitable when we should be getting down to what needs to happen you know you know that cuz i mean it's it's just it it comes just before when she finally says take off your hat I wish she. I wish when he did
3: take off her hat, his hat, she had said, "Put it back on," because that toupee is is painful. Like that would have been great.
2: He didn't have a toupee back then, did he? Sure, he did. Fuck. No that. way, because I was I was looking.
3: Or it was that, like a a, a serious comb over. One one of those. But I think it was a tube. Oh. Mark didn't he? He's had he has he had a toupee. I mean,
1: he's got a lot less hair and deliverance than he does in Smokey and the Bandit. Well, hmm. I I think. In deliverance, that's a deliberate decision. That if we're trying to trace the history of Bert's toupee and versus his real hair, and you know when you know when did it, you know the the evolution. I don't know when it starts. I I am I am willing to say that maybe in Smokey he's wearing some augmentation, but not a full toupee. Augmentation.
2: If that's a toupee, it's a good one.
1: And. Look, even even in the later years, I think about uh, you know Robert Forster's line in Jackie Brown's, like, yeah, I got a toupee, and I look in the mirror, I see me. Well, or, he doesn't say toupee. He's Forster's... got hair
3: treatment. Like he's he got did like, something plugs. about
1: it. Yeah, yeah, he did something. About
2: he it. said I did yeah, something about yeah. it. Yeah. What about all of his lines in Alligator? Like he was already talking about it in Alligator.
3: Can I? I'm going to admit something to you because we're in a safe space where we're welcoming and it's not about who knew this before Mm -hmm. anybody else. But it wasn't until this past year, I think that I suddenly found out and was like shocked and amazed to discover that, to find out that Jimmy Stewart was wearing a toupee for most of his career. And then all of these movies, like, uh, you know, Fucking all those Hitchcock movies, like Vertigo. He's wearing a fucking piece. I had no idea. I love Jimmy oh, Stewart's hair in those movies, especially like the back of his head. Man, why? Why are you doing this to me? I'm sorry. I
1: thought I was the last to know.
2: All right, Delametri.
1: Is is his acting any less brilliant? Because it's more he's brilliant. Using a more
2: brilliant. Because I always like the, the back problem? of. I like the back of Jimmy Stewart's neck. Yes, that's in what I just movies. said.
3: I just said no, that.
2: Did you say the back of his neck? Yes, I said the back was of his neck. I was I'm reeling from, from you, you know, Dude, telling me there was no Santa Claus.
3: I went to, a, when I first moved to Madison, I went to a, a, a hairstylist, a barber, who was mostly, mostly what he did was he cut hair for regional theater companies.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And I brought him a picture of Jimmy Stewart. The back, I found a picture online of the back of Jimmy Stewart's head from, I think, from Vertigo. And his neckline. And I said, this is what I want. Give me this fucking back of my head neckline. He's like, oh, yeah, that's the best. And he did it for me that one time.
2: Yeah, but I, I'm not talking about his, his the hair of his neckline. I'm talking about the actual wrinkles on his neck. Yeah. Yeah.
3: But then the no, way I, that... I, whenever I that's watch Vertigo, to, I cannot right.
2: stop looking yeah. at the wrinkles on his neck.
3: Yes, but, the, but he's got a beautiful, like, what do they call it? Tapered cut. Of his hair, yes. like coming out of those wrinkles. It's it's the whole package. Right. It's the wrinkles. But I'm and talking the,
2: about the yes. the el, the epidermis. Yes,
3: you're right. Those are amazing <laughs> wrinkles.
2: Yes. Wow. I never never even occurred to me. I, I'm afraid to watch those movies again. I know. I'm, you know, Mark. The problem is, I feel like I'm just going to be staring at his head from now on, and and I don't need that in my life at this point.
1: I'm acutely sympathetic because, uh, for years, I just you know watched Bryce Dallas Howard and thought, okay, fine enough actress, and and then one day she's, somebody she's wearing was, a rug too. No, one day somebody pointed out pointed out the fact that she has a large posterior, and it's a really and like you never <laughs> noticed, and consequently. That's all I can ever see from this point forward when I look at Bryce Dallas Howard.
2: Well, apparently I'm an ass man, because when I walk down the street, people yell out at me, hey, you're an ass man.
1: I am a monumental
3: ass. Uh. <laughs> Pour one out for Rodney. Somebody come up with a good joke about Bryce Dallas Howard's ass, and and that really being a reference to her dad.
2: The village? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> They call uh, her ass a, a village. Don't talk about Ron Howard like that. So, what movies were playing when uh, this movie was playing?
3: Oh, oh, I thought you'd never ask. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, yeah,
1: this is my favorite part of the show. Okay, good. Yes. I
3: think, you know, you used to be on a, a quiz show. So, Mark, I'm going to read you. I know that Scott sucks at this game, and there's no shame in that. There's no shame in no. that. I'm going to read shame. you. I'm going to read you a couple of taglines from posters, uh, from t- newspaper ads, movies showing that day. You tell me what movie I'm talking about. You ready? Yeah. Mark? Bring it on. Are you? <laughs> okay. Is it a phantom, a demon, or the devil himself? There's nowhere to turn, nowhere to hide,
1: no way to stop. Uh, okay. This is, not, this is 1977. Or the devil himself. Um, it's a tricky
3: one because of those words.
1: The heretic. No, no. Exorcist 2, The Heretic had already come and gone by that point. Uh, it's not The Omen because that was also 1976. Um, oh, is it uh, The Chosen? It's not The, cho- the Chosen? The Chosen.
3: <laughs> it was The Quickening. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. The Chosen with Robbie Benson?
1: No, The Chosen with Kirk Douglas. No. And uh, it, it is it is alternately known oh, as Fury. Holocaust 2000 and uh,
3: Reign of Fire. I love all that info, but you're wrong. And I'm going to give you a, this. I'll read it again. Is it a phantom, a demon, or the devil himself? There's nowhere to turn, nowhere to hide, no way to stop, dot, dot, dot. I'll give you a cast member of this Used movie. cars. Ooh. You're getting warm. Uh, Ronnie Cox is in this movie, and I mentioned him because we talked about him last time. uh, Ooh, Deliverance. And I didn't even know Ronnie Cox is in this movie. And I love this movie. Okay, you guys both. Sorry, sorry, Mark. Oh, the car. It's It's the the car. car. Yes, it's the the car. car. Yeah. Here's here's another one. A mother's agonizing struggle against the unimaginable. What was it?
1: (laughs) Terrible. Mothers. Oh, oh God! Uh, a mother's agonizing struggle against the inevitable, unimaginable, unimaginable, unimaginable. Um, and
3: then, the, then it it literally says it. Literally says, "What was it?" Like that's part of the tagline. What was it? <laughs> it's alive. That's a good guess.
1: Um, is it a horror film? Well, nominally, yes. Okay, so it is not it's not the devil within her with Joan Collins. Okay, good good. No. Good hint. Okay, a mother a mother's struggle. Uh it, is it is it Audrey Rose? Yes it is. Mark, Oh, yes. It out. Nice nice.
3: Look at him. He's breathing easy. Hey, We're back on Comedy <laughs> Central and things are going all right. Uh, well, here's a movie I, I saw for the first time last year. Oh, uh, I guess there's no tagline that I can read from this thing.
1: Well, I, I, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna
3: I'm gonna block out a keyword, but the tagline is this: "The power of blank has never been so real or so brilliant." That's the tagline for this movie. And and the what I'm what I'm leaving out is the name of the director. The power of oh has never been so real or so brilliant
1: has never been so real. May of 1977. Sorcerer. That's a good guess. 1977. You're not that bad. Well, yeah. Out. Yeah. Well, I mean, Sorcerer was a 77 movie and got eclipsed by Star Wars and Smokey and the Bandit, but uh, the power of... No justice. Ha- ...has never been... The power of... Okay, the director has never been... Uh, 1977... Is it Valentino by Ken Russell? (laughs) No. (laughs) That's a hell of a guess. Uh,
3: No, it's Cross of Iron, Sam Peckinpah. The power of of Peckinpah. It's it's alliteration at its finest. It's a lot of alliteration, my friend. Yeah,
2: A lot of alliteration by anxious anchors placed in powerful posts.
3: Okay, right next to that. Peter Percival Patterson's pet pig, Porky. Uh, in 1943, 16 German paratroopers landed in England. In three days, they almost won the war. Circle of Iron. <laughs> the eagle has landed. Nice, Mark Edward nice. Oik again for the win. There he goes. Well, here's so so, you, so Mark. Early on, you were talking about Star Wars and um, Smoking the Bandit being the two biggest things, the number one, number two biggest things of 1977 in the world of. Film, but what certainly I would have to say was the third, and maybe even maybe somebody else would probably argue is higher up on that top three is this uh, this movie now, which doesn't have a tagline, but in the ad for this says the biggest hit in America. Mmm. What was advertised itself the biggest hit in America that week? Yeah. What is the third most important, at the very least, the third most important film of 1977? Um, Is it The
1: Other Side of Midnight? (laughs) No, it's not. uh, No. Oh, no, no, no. I I know. Actually, I do know this answer. It is The Other Side of the Mountain. No. But which one of those is Larry Pierce? Mountain or Midnight? Uh,
3: Mountain. Yeah. I love Larry Pierce. Two Minute Warning. I keep trying to get Scott to watch it. One of my favorite movies. I know it's... Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo. Nice. During Don Knotts. Nice catch. Nice call. I don't was was Don Knotts in Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo?
2: He
3: was.
1: Uh, oddly <laughs> enough, Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo is a movie I saw multiple times, all at drive ins. Nice. I think I must have.
2: Yeah, I, was, I was gonna bring uh, it up today because it's interesting that this movie and that movie came out the same year.
3: Uh, the biggest hit in America, and certainly in the top three of the most important and influential and like cultural milestones of 1977. Deer Hunter. It, it hurts me that neither one of you know this off the top Marathon of my head, man. But it, maybe it's because you're not New Yorkers. Annie Motherfucking Hall. That was 77. I thought that was 78. Dude, it won the it won the Academy
1: Award over Star Wars. Well, oh that w- oh wait that was your answer? Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. I I, I thought oh I thought. See Well Number one what, I didn't what, know What's your excuse How
3: Don't you think that Annie Hall Is in the top three Of movies that so year Annie Hall Influential I
2: Annie Hall made more money Than he centered I'm, I not, that, I'm not talking one, about money you know,
1: We were going off On another joke tangent And number Number two <laughs> I <didn't laughs> never not know Annie Hall Had <laughs> Had opened that Early in the year and number three, that was a third rail that I didn't want to touch.
3: Oh, okay. Well, fair
1: enough.
2: Yeah, I, I'm just uh, ashamed that I didn't think of it. I love it. Uh, you're right. I should have thought of it. If you had told me it won
1: an Oscar, I would have nailed it right then and there.
2: Okay, fair enough. Or maybe I wouldn't have.
3: Maybe I would have said.
1: All you had to say was a nervous romance. All right, here's one that's
3: a, that's a sort of a trick question for Scott. Uh, But, uh, Mark, feel free to jump in on this Uh, This this doesn't have a pull quote I mean, it doesn't have a tagline But it's got one pull quote from Rona Barrett of ABC TV Says Mm -hmm. this movie is the greatest suspense thriller of the decade What?
2: Exorcist 2 The Heretic
3: Was that 77, by the way? I don't even think... Was it? (laughs)
2: Um, I'd have to look it up. Well, don't. But, oh, don't uh, the
3: bother. sorcerer. Sorcerer, right? It's going to be sorcerer. No. Black Sunday. Oh, God
1: damn it. Yes, Mark? Do you want to guess now that I said it? No, I I, I I, I, was, you know, I was lagging uh, net wise when, when all that went down. So. Oh.
3: Okay. That's always a good excuse. So here we go. Here's a gimme. And Mark, just, you can just jump right in. Um, I'm just, I mean, this is just a gimme. Although, having said that, if I wasn't on this side of the screen, I don't know if I would get it. A beautiful woman, a master computer, the most shocking act of creation ever imagined. It's actually got two yeah, tags. Yeah. Lines. It's got demon seed. Thank you, demon. Oh, look, dude, Scott, look at you. It's got a second tagline. I don't know why they have both of these. The other one is from a computer's mind and a woman's body, a new generation of screen terror is born.
2: Uh, Who directed the Demon Seed?
3: Donald Camel. Um, camel. Oh, you say Camel. That's, right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a performance.
3: Uh, here's one <laughs> The CB Battle Cry. Check out my of wild the side. Great, <laughs> the CB Battle Cry of the Great Truckers' War. Breaker, Breaker. Nice. Nicely nice. Done. Well done. Uh huh. Uh huh. All right. Here's I'm going to give you three pull quotes for this next movie. Richard Schickel says an energetic and original movie. Vernon Scott of UPI says the funniest new comedy of the year. And Vin- shot. Yes. Damn you didn't even you didn't even wait to the third quote. Look at you. Look at you. What do you just have a list of 1977 movies for me? <laughs> no, I mean, obviously. You're looking down at something. I'm listening to you. Winner, loser, lover, loudmouth, the man. And I'll tell you who's in this movie. You ready? Yes. I'll read you the tagline. I'll, I'll, I'll read you that tagline. There's one more tagline. And then I'll tell you some people in the cast. So it's winner, loser, lover, loudmouth, the man. And then it says. The story you only think you know. The greatest. Yes. I didn't even have to give the cast. Fantastic. What is it? It's a. It's the Muhammad Ali oh, movie. Oh, it's the, the Muhammad Ali movie. Okay. All I right. was going to give you Ernest Borgnine, John Marley, Robert Duvall, David Huddleston, Ben Johnson, James Earl Jones. Listen to this cast.
1: I've never seen it. I know. Has any, have I've you guys seen, seen The either. Greatest? No. I just Never know that a good chunk was ghost directed by Monty Hellman. Oh, really? nice.
3: I was watching two guys in the Criterion closet the other day. I bet you on were. On YouTube. And one of them, who, who was this? It was, um, I can't remember who the two directors are, but one of them pulled out Tulane Blacktop and said, oh my God, this is great. And the other one did not know the movie at all. And when he said Monty Hellman, the other director still didn't know who, what he was talking about.
2: And they'd worked on movies together before?
3: Um, no, but they were both pretty like big, you know, sort of criterion level directors.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: might have been that Polish guy, Paweł Pawlowski, or whatever his name is. Oh, I love him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cold War. He so damn good. Blacked up. It's great. Well, that's actually it for the New York Times from that Friday. Oh, okay. Well, that's all right. We've been talking for two hours and 20 minutes. And... Yeah, we the movie ended about an hour ago. <laughs> right, that's right. I we st- tried. To keep I started it. Yeah. I will say this about Smokey and the Bandit. It is, and we did say this before, it's economical as fuck. It moves, and it's like done. 90 minutes and you're out. And honestly, watching... Um, it happened one night. I'm like, this fucking thing drags, you know, and that's supposed to have set the standard for screwball comedies. That's an hour forty five, if not longer. And you feel that movie. In its well, there's mid-section. a lot
2: of stuff going on before they actually get on the road.
3: Well, even when they're on the road, there's a lot of shit that's there's a lot of them sitting around in those like flop house rooms with the curtain between them. And it's like, OK. I don't need three of these scenes. It's supposed to have happened one night, and meanwhile, there's at least three nights of <laughs> bullshit between the three the two of them. All right, take it easy on it. Happened one night. It's okay. pretty great. It's pretty great, but I, you know, uh, it doesn't move the way Smokey and the Bandit moves. I'll give it. The, I'll mm. say that about it. It doesn't have to. No, it doesn't have to. Clark Gable's pretty good. Pretty funny guy. Yeah, those ears. What,
1: yeah. One last observation I'd like to throw in is the please the fact that. There are so many movies from the 70s onward where Universal is tapping into car culture. You know, that besides, like, the same year that they released Smokey and the Bandit, they they gave a nominal release to Robert Klaus's Checkered Flag or Crash with uh, Joe Don Baker and Susan Sarandon, which is this, you know, low-budget Philippine you know, road race movie, and, you know, few years after Smokey and the Bandit, we get the Blues Brothers, and now, obviously, The Fast and the Furious is their cash cow, and, you know, that along the, and, and, you know, I think if we went along the way, we'd find other movies connected to to the studio that depended on uh, King of the Mountain is another one that I, oh, I one more, of Ben's favorites. That, that when I think when I think about cars, I think about Universal more than any other studio. Even though obviously there have been plenty of other great car movies from all the other majors. I mean, you know. Twentieth alone did you know Dirty Mary Crazy Larry and Vanishing Point and Race with the Devil, but for some reason I think Universal just established themselves as the Hot Rod Studio, and ironically Paramount made Hot Rod.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good observation, especially on the eve of uh, Fast and Furious Nine.
2: Oh yeah, that's right. Good thinking.
3: Well, Good gentlemen, placement. it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, love talking, speaking yeah. the bandit with both of you, Scott. I appreciate your, uh, your your counter your counter attack. I mean,
2: I think you guys changed my mind. I I, I uh, I'm gonna watch it again right now.
3: <laughs> you don't have to.
2: See I mean, I've got I've got another day before the rental wears off, so I might as well watch it again.
3: All right, I can hook you up with the 4K. You could.
2: I'll just watch it again. I'll 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 put it on the projector. Watch it. Uh,
3: Did you not watch it on the projector?
2: No, I did. Oh, okay. It's got a nice grain to it, so it kind of looks
3: it looks filmic. Yeah. Um. So it's all right. Oh, uh, and what do we think is going on with Gleason and that skin tone, that bronzing? I mean, that's like a pre-Trump bronze. Is that is that is that is that painted on? Did he get a its hand? Probably what he
2: was doing at the time, right? I mean,
3: it'd been a while for him. Right? So you think it's not a character thing? It's like Gleason was walking around like that all the time? All right. So anyway, we're done. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, we're done. Goodbye. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> okay, Bye.